So today, what, what I want to consider is the issue of slavery, and the issue of slavery is massive. There's been so much written on this that you cannot possibly read it all. I think if you spent uh, dedicated your life to reading all that has been written on slavery, you would spend many decades reading and still not cover it all. What I want us to consider is this particular issue this morning. Is slavery inherently evil? Is slavery inherently evil? So everything we're going to kind of say today is going to get geared around trying to answer that one question. Is slavery inherently evil? And there's a reason for that. We need to answer that because as Christians living today, we need to know how to respond to our history. How do we think about slavery? Past present, and even future. We need to know what the Bible says about these things. And Christians have answered that question differently over the past 2,000 years, or even, even more if you go back to Old Testament believers. Some claim that the Bible is pro-slavery. Now, there aren't very many of those today because it's politically incorrect. But there have been Christians throughout history who have said the Bible is pro-slavery. Then there are Christians who are pro-abolitionists who say the Bible is pro-abolitionist, that it supports an abolitionist view. And, and we see this, this tension through history. And, and here's one illustration that I give uh, from U.S. history. I'm more concerned with what the Bible says, but I want to give you a kind of a, a, an illustration of the tension of this from U.S. history. On, at 9.41 in the morning, on June 10th, 1964, Senator Robert C. Byrd completed an address that began 14 hours and 13 minutes earlier. He spoke for 14 hours and 13 minutes. It was part of a two-week filibuster of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Now, the Civil Rights Act is a measure that occupied the Senate for 60 working hours, uh, 60 working days, that is, including some Saturdays in there. But when... When the the minority whips, um, when the Senate sorry Senate whips uh, decided they had enough votes to pass it, then they passed it and they shut down the filibuster. But the Civil Rights Act provided protection for voting rights. It banned discrimination in public places, public facilities, including private businesses offering public services, such as lunch counters, hotels, theaters, and established equal equal employment opportunities. Now, Byrd had spoken all night, and as the morning broke, he, before he finished, he turned to theology and the Bible. He was annoyed that ministers across the country had filled his mailbox and jammed his phone lines in an attempt to pressure, to put pressure upon him to pass the Civil Rights Act. He was standing opposed to it. And, and though Though he noted that he was no expert in Scripture, he turned to the Scriptures. He said that he spent considerable time trying to find the scriptural basis upon which we are implored to enact proposed legislation. So, take him at his word, he went to the Bible to try to find where it would say something to help him to know whether to pass the act or not. And after this, he concluded his search, he said, I find none. Now, keep in mind, he is not a biblical expert, but this is, this is his words. In fact, he found the exact opposite, is what he said. 
Jesus' parable, the ten virgins, there are the five foolish and the five wise, convinced him that one must discriminate between the wise and the foolish. He said, and I quote, if all men are created equal, how can five of the virgins have been wise and five foolish, unquote. Now, obviously, he's ripping that out of context. Hopefully, you realize that, okay? But he is nonetheless using or misusing the Bible. Now, to prove his point even more emphatically, he read from Genesis 9, being at verse verse 18, which we'll look at in a moment. He And he read Genesis 9, 18 to 27, into the congressional record. To Bird, Genesis 9 meant that God had endorsed racial separation and discrimination and using Genesis 9 to support segregation and the continuance of of Jim Crow laws Byrd was relying upon the so-called curse of Ham now according to mythology that developed around this story Noah cursed his son that part's not mythology did curse his 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 actually cursed his grandson as we'll see Noah but the mythology is that Noah cursed his son Ham to perpetual slavery. And Ham, according to Genesis 10, was the founding father of Africa. And therefore, thus this mythology goes that all of Africa is cursed under this into slavery, specifically black African slavery. Now, notice a couple things with this. First of all, you had ministers who are writing to him appealing that he passed the act. We have no idea what kind of logic they were using or what scriptural basis they were using or they were just appealing to his emotions. We don't know. But he is responding with scripture or trying to respond to scripture. Keep in mind, Senator Byrd was a previous Ku Klux Klan member and, in fact, one of those guys that recruited other members. Um, so you have to. He, there's no claim that he is an actual Christian, but he's using scripture, and that's what I want us to wrestle with. I want us to wrestle with the scripture. And the fact that he went to Genesis 9 to support his view of segregation and slavery is something he didn't invent. Where did he get that? Many theologians, many pastors were actually had done that before him. In, in a booklet entitled Slavery in the Bible, which was written just before Civil War broke out, Pastor Philip Schaft depended upon this common misunderstanding of Genesis 9. And I just want to quote him for a minute so you hear it. The curse of involuntary servitude, which in the text is confined to the youngest son of Canaan because of his close contact with the Israelites, has affected nearly the whole of the posterity of Ham, or those unfortunate African races, which for many centuries have groaned and are still groaning under the despotic rule of the Romans, the Sarians, uh, the Turks, and even those Christian nations who engaged in the iniquity of the African slave trade. Whether we connect it with this ancient prophecy or not, it is simply a fact which no one can deny that the Negro to, Negro to this day is a servant of servants in our own midst. Japheth, on the other hand, the progenitor of half of the human race, who possesses a part of Asia and whole of Europe, is still extending his posterity and territory in the westward course of empire and holds Ham in bondage far away from his original home and final destination. Slavery, then, is represented from the start as a punishment and a curse and is continued as such from generation to generation for these 4,000 years, falling with especial severity upon the African race and involving the innocent with the guilty." 
does Genesis 9, unquote, does Genesis 9 actually support the slavery of Africans? We'll answer that in a moment, but the short version is no. But but many had. Why weren't there any like major appeals to the New Testament as pastor debated pastor regarding the issue of slavery? Well, first thing is, people come to the scriptures with presuppositions. Many people did not come to the Bible saying, you know what? I just want to know what the Bible says. I'll do whatever the Bible says. So they went to the Bible wanting to find something. So those who are supporting slavery went to the Bible to try to find support for slavery. Those who supported abolition went to the Bible looking for verses that supported abolition. They were looking for a fight and found a verse is essentially what was going on. They didn't come to the scriptures as students of the scriptures wanting to know the mind of God on these things. Now, secondly, the New Testament, listen carefully. This is where you have to you have to say if you're a believer. You have to say, I want God's word. I, I will change if I'm convinced by God's word. Right? Listen, the New Testament does not directly condemn or support slavery. Say it again. The Bible does not directly condemn or support slavery. And here again, I want to I want to quote Philip Schaff. Okay, so you hear this from his mouth because he was writing to support slavery. But I want you to hear it from him. The position of the New Testament is neither anti-slavery nor pro-slavery in our modern sense of the term, but rises above all partisan views. It nowhere establishes or abolishes the institution of slavery as little as monarchy or as any other form of government. It neither sanctions nor condemns it. Sanction means to support it. It neither meddles with political and financial aspects. It never meddles with its political and financial aspects and leaves the system as to its policy and profitableness to the secular rulers. But it recognizes, tolerates, and ameliorates makes it makes it more friendly, more loving, as it as an extension as it as an existing and then universally established fact. It treats it under its moral bearings and enjoins the duties and responsibilities of masters and servants. It corrects its abuses, cures the root of the evil, and provides the only rational and practical remedy for its ultimate extinction wherever it can be abolished legitimately and with benefit to both parties, unquote. Why is the New Testament so silent on the issue of slavery? And because of this silence, many non-Christians who know certain parts of the Bible have used that to embarrass Christians as they, as they, as they talk about the Word of God. You ever had that happen? You're saying, the Bible is God's Word, and they're like, yeah, but the Bible supports slavery. Everybody knows that's wrong. Well, or at least the Bible is silent. They will try to rally verses, typically from the Old Testament, typically misunderstood, but they'll rally those to try to bring a level of embarrassment to New Testament believers so that we'll abandon the Word of God. And we'll go, oh, yeah. well, I guess we just have to talk about God's love, not, not these other things. 
what do the scriptures really teach about slavery? So that what we want to look at is, is to help us answer the question, is slavery inherently evil? Now, the first thing we need to do is define slavery. You might think, well, don't we all know what slavery is? In, in essence, I'd say we have a general concept, but your understanding would be slightly different than mine, slightly different than somebody else's, slightly different than somebody living in the Roman times, slightly different from someone living in biblical times, slightly different from someone living in, in um, as a slave, as an African slave in the United States. So what is slavery? So essentially slavery is a system that constrains one person to serve another. It constrains one person to serve another. As noted in the book, Slavery Throughout the Ages, slavery involves complete mastery of one individual or group over another. What a slave is, it's someone who has, uh, uh, who has been completely mastered over, uh, by another person. Uh, the, the subjection of a slave was so complete that he was literally a person owned as property by another. Right? Some cultures would even go so far as to look at them as only property. Others would see them as a person, yet as property, something to be owned, as well as a person. And, and really it is that complete domination of another person that, that is how the Paul uses the word. You know, the Apostle Paul uses the word slave, and it is that meaning that he, that he uh, conveys when he calls himself a slave. For example, in Galatians 1.10, he calls himself a slave of Christ. In Romans 1.1, 1, 1, he says, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. In Titus 1.1, 1, 1, he calls himself a slave of God. Paul repeatedly called himself a, a slave of Christ, a slave of God. In, in other words, Paul was acknowledging not only that he was an apostle, right? Very rarely did I actually use that term. Uh, but he, he more often uses the term that calls himself a slave of Christ or a slave of Christ Jesus or a slave of God. What he's saying is that is that he is under the total mastery of God. God has total rights over his life and could do with him whatever he wanted. So Paul intends this idea of, of complete subjection. And he uses that, that way again. He uses the term slave again to talk about how we need to fight against sin in 1 Corinthians 9.27. I'll just read that. He says, I, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. In other words, control your body. Right? And he uses the word slave. Right? That implies what slave means. One person controlling another. Right? Everybody in, in Paul's culture understood that. There were many slaves at that time. So, he, he used the term, make your body a slave, right? It's actually a command. It's a, it's a metaphor, but you are to make your body a slave unto righteousness. Right? So that's the idea with slavery. It's the idea of total mastery over another. So I ask you a question. Is it, is it inherently wrong for one person to have total mastery over another? Let that percolate. Let's move from the definition of slavery to understand some important historical background about slavery. The first thing we want to understand is that slavery originated from the fall of man. In other words, the fall of man is what introduced what we know as slavery, particularly all the evils of slavery, into this world. Um, slavery to sin is, is the fountainhead 
from which all other forms of oppressive slavery drink. So slavery in God's word um, comes very early. But before you get to that, slavery in, in God's original plan, you could say was good. Hear me out. Slavery in God's original plan was good. What do I mean by that? All right. So let's go back to the garden. Six times in Genesis, when God creates the world, six times in Genesis, God, after he creates in day one, day two, through day six, he says, he declares his creation as what? Good. And at the end of that, he's he, looking at all of it. He says, it's not just good, but it's what? Very good. It's very good. Now, did God have complete mastery over his creation? Absolutely. Did he have complete mastery over Adam and Eve? Absolutely. So when I say that that slavery, all right, um, it basically is was in the garden. It's in that sense. Slavery in God's original plan was good. Now he didn't use the word slavery, but the idea and the concept is there. God had complete mastery over His creation, and everything was good. Right? Adam and Eve lacked for nothing. Right? They were not mistreated. God still had mastery over them. Slavery, what we know to be so offensive, entered in through Adam and Eve's sin. So we see slavery enter the work of God at the fall of mankind. When Adam and Eve sin against God in Genesis 3 verses 1 to 7, they rebel against God. They say, God, we reject you as our master. And they thought they were declaring their freedom, didn't they? They thought, we can live independently of God. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But what were they doing? They were declaring independence from God. They were throwing their fist up at God and saying, we don't want you to tell us what to do. We want to make the rules on how we're going to live. So they declared themselves independent of God and brought sin into the world, death through sin, but through this, not only did they bring death, but part of the suffering of sin is slavery. All the evil slavery that you've ever heard about. Right? All of that is ushered in by the fall, by man rejecting God's mastery. They brought in something different. They thought they were actually declaring their independence. But what happened? They fell to sin. And sin entered in and became what? Their master. Right? I'll show you this. Go to Romans. Right? About time we open the scriptures, right? Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Now look at, um, look at verse, go back to verse 10 for a minute. For if we were, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only this, but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received, we have now received the reconciliation. 
So sin enters in, but God intervenes in order to rescue us from sin and death. Right? That, that's what I want you to, to see there. And then look at Romans 6. We see the connection with, with sin and slavery. Begin at verse 1, Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the, from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become... We, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to what? Sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. He's using the analogy. Once someone dies then the law has no longer any mastery over them. Right? So when a slave died, the master couldn't rule them anymore. So the old master of sin dies with Christ, and therefore you are no longer under sin, and you are free to live in Christ and to live for him. Is that, that's, that's the argument that Paul's using. Sin's mastery over you is broken. Right? And that's every single person who's born in this world is born under Slavery of sin. And Christ is the only way to be free of that. So we have a culture right now. We live in a culture that's that's like the Garden of Eden or the fall amplified. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody's declaring themselves king of their lives. They are rebelling against God and they think they're free. When in actuality, sin has deceived them. Satan has deceived them. They are slaves to sin. They cannot help but sin. They cannot stop. They are enslaved to it. They are being mastered by it. Don't believe their lie that they can stop whenever they want. They can't. It's like an addiction. They keep coming back for more. But Christ, through Christ, anybody who turns to Christ can be freed from the slavery to sin. So that's, that's the good news. If you repent of your sins... And turn to Jesus Christ. Believe that he is the Lord and the God. He will rescue you. He will buy you back, as it will, from the marketplace of sin. He will buy you at the cost of his own life. And he will free you from slavery to sin. And you are to become slave to Christ. To a good master. So Christ conquers the slavery to sin. But until the Lord comes and consummates his kingdom, the slavery to sin will still persist in this world and all the ramifications that come from that. So that's, the, that's, the, that's kind of like the first point, to understand a background of, of slavery, where it came from, especially the evil slavery that we know, that we often associate with the word slavery. Slavery has been a common feature throughout human history. Slavery appears very early in the biblical history. So I'm talking here slavery to men. Uh, Let's look at an example from the life of of Noah. You can turn to Genesis 9. Probably should turn there because this is the passage that has so often been misused. Genesis chapter 9. 
and I will not be doing an exposition on this, but I'm going to read it and then make some observations. Genesis 9. And I want to begin at verse 18. This is after the flood. So the people that are alive in Genesis 9 are the only people alive in the earth. They're, They're these men and their wives. So verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. His last words. Actually, it's kind of interesting. This is the only words that we hear directly from Noah. Is that curse and blessings of his three sons. So what's going on here? Well, you have... have, um, Ham, who sins against his father. Now, there are a lot of people in today's wicked, perverted age that read into this some kind of homosexual act. Don't read that in the text. We have to back up a little bit. Ham was where during the flood? On the ark. Which meant he believed his father's word about that God was going to judge this world. So if we have nothing else to go on, we can see that, that Ham is a, is a believer in God. Now he does sin. So in a, in a, just, just keep that as a, as, a, as a point as we discuss this. That's probably why Ham himself is not cursed in this. So Noah curses Canaan. Now why Canaan? You think that's so unfair. Well, there's a couple of things going on here. Remember when we don't know all the facts. Two, we want to understand why is Canaan spotlighted here? Right? So step back a little further. When was Genesis written? Right? Who wrote Genesis? Moses. Right? It's one of the five books of Moses. The first book. Moses wrote it. Was Moses alive during this time? No. Right? God revealed him real these things to him supernaturally and wrote them down. But where was Moses when he was when he was um, recounting all of these things? He was leading Israel and they were on the verge of going into the promised land to do what? To attack who? The Canaanites. So they're really blood relatives. God needed to help the Israelites understand why his orders were to go into the land of Canaan and wipe them out. 
God ordered the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites completely. Leave none alive. Why such harsh orders? Because they were a wicked, a wicked people. And I, I don't think we quite understand the, the wickedness of a people like that when God orders the annihilation of an entire nation, entire communities. But, but the point of all that is God was trying to help the Israelites understand why it is they were attacking the Canaanites and connected it back with this curse of Noah on Canaan. So, so Noah spoke prophetically in this case. So whatever God does is just and right. God's just giving us these details to help us understand why it is the Israelites were attacking the Canaanites. Ham's other descendants... Um, did go down to like the regions of Africa and Ethiopia, right? But where did the Canaanites go? And what we area that we know, Canaan, right? right? Modern day Israel, right? Still going on. So, track with me. So Noah didn't curse all of his sons, and it didn't affect all of all of his sons or all of his grandsons. It's just Canaan, not all the rest. So we're not saying they weren't sinners. Certainly they were sinners. Everybody's born as sin. We're just saying they're not cursed. So those that go down into Africa and by God's grace and his providence, right, the melatonin levels differ and become more concentrated in some uh, skin levels than others, that in, in God's providence, they're, they're darker. But that is not um, a reason to say that all Africans are under this curse. They're not. Who was under the curse? The Canaanites. And the Canaanites bore the wrath of God's judgment and um, many times were enslaved. So all that, all that to say is there's much more you could say and study there, and I recommend Pastor MacArthur's sermon on, on this passage. But all that to say it's a misuse of, Rome, of Genesis 9 to, to justify slavery or segregation because of, of, of the curse of Canaan. In fact, many people speak of the curse of Ham right, in order to justify that, in order to justify that. But it's, it's not right. It's not right at all. All I have to say is we're just saying that slavery appears very early in biblical history. And it appears very quickly even um, after the, the flood. There's an example from the life of, of Job. And now Job is a little bit of a mystery to us because we don't know who wrote the book or exactly when it was written. But, but based on Job's characteristics and the lifestyle, we believe that he lived sometime around the patriarchal period. So after Noah, but probably before Abraham. In Job 1.3, we're told that Job had very many servants. It's the word servant, it's not the word slave, but often a servant was a slave. So so there's that to note. Job 1.15 talks about young men. When when, uh, Job's a complete economy when his business, he called him his business, when his livestock are attacked, right? There are raiders that come in and attack them. I'll just read it. It says, the oxen were plowing. This is the report that, that Job read or Job heard. The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them. They also struck down the young men with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. you know, the, the term the young man is a term that's used in the Old Testament to speak of slaves. So in all likelihood, what we know, Job owned slaves. And, and Job 
knew what it was like. The idea of being a master, being a slave was very common for Job. When Job is lamenting after everything is done, after Satan attacks him so many times, takes all of his, kills all of his children, and so much harm is done to him, Job laments the day of his birth. He says, better that I would not have been born. And he, and he says this, in, in saying he wanted to be with the dead, he says, the small and the great are there. The slave is free from his master. Right? That Kind of that point that Paul picks up on in Romans um, later. So, Job knew what a slave was. He knew what a master was. And and it's got another example, I guess before we move on to another example, is that we should notice how God describes God. Uh, sorry, God describes Job, even though he he owned slaves. He, then Yahweh said to Satan, this comes from Job 1.8, then Yahweh said to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So based on this alone, this helps inform our biblical ethic when you're looking at the question, is slavery inherently evil? Have to take this into account. God said Job was upright. Fearing God and turning away from evil. What about the example of a life from Abraham? Um, for the sake of brevity, I will summarize this. This comes from Genesis 12. And um, when Genesis 12 tells us in verse 5 that, that Abraham acquired persons in Haran. He acquired persons in Haran. This tells you what? He had slaves. Um, in Genesis 12, verses 15 and 16, he, he is given, he comes into possession of servants. And it's kind of interesting that, um, and a sad fact, that two times uh, Abraham told a, a half lie. He said that and because he was afraid of his life as he approached different nations and different kings, and he told his wife, Sarah, just tell them you're my sister, which was actually true, a half-sister, Right? But nonetheless related. Right? So, um, but he did not want her to say that that he that she was uh, his his wife from Abimelech and an, and another king. And it's it's interesting. Not once, but twice, Abraham does this, and both times, right? Ab- Abraham is given slaves as a reward. Right? So again, he accumulates more. It's a fascinating story. We don't have time to talk to it, time to actually turn to it and look at all the details of it. But I'll, I'll, I'm showing these examples to say we have men that God used, men that were not perfect, but they are men who are godly men who own slaves. Uh, we also need to understand that slavery is commonplace in the Old and New Testament times. It is a controversial thing to us. And it's good that it is gone, at least in the legal sense. But in the Old and New Testament times, it was commonplace. Absolutely commonplace. No one fought against it. There are records even that when the slaves, that some slaves owned slaves, and when slaves were freed, they would own slaves. So while they didn't like being slaves, they didn't have a problem owning slaves themselves. 
So hardly anybody was fighting against the system. There were some slave revolts in history, but most of those were led led by uh, some of the gladiators and others that, that were forced to, to fight, and they were fighters to begin with. So understand that in Old Testament times, there were many slaves. How, how are people made slaves in Old Testament times? One could be made a slave after being conquered in battle, right? In modern warfare, we don't practice this. But it used to be the case when one nation conquered another nation, they would have two choices. One, you completely wipe them out, everybody. Or you, you conquer the, the fighting men, and everybody else you take as slaves, and you make them slaves. And that's just what was done. Um, now, we might, look, we might think of that as, as, um, as harsh, and it is harsh. But what was the alternative? Either they take them as slaves to do what? Kill them. So under those circumstances, right, those weren't the only two options, but they're the only two options that were usually pursued by one nation conquering another nation. Um, it, it was more compassionate to take them as slaves as than it would be to, to kill them all. Another way that someone could be made a slave is you could be kidnapped. And the Bible addresses this. For example, Joseph was kidnapped by his brothers and sold into slavery. Right? So that's a good example of, of that. And I'd have to say that this practice was a capital offense in Scripture. Right? In the Old Testament law, if one man stole another man and sold him, right, the man who did the stealing, the man stealing, was to be put to death. It was a capital offense. Right? So let that speak to the evils of the slave trade. All of those who were guilty of man-stealing in God's eyes deserve a capital capital punishment. So for sure we can say with clarity that the Bible doesn't support the slave trade or stealing of men to be slaves, men, women, or children. By the way, that still goes on today, sadly. Um, another way that a person could be made a slave is through difficult times. Right, so if you made some bad financial decisions, and you took a loan out that you could not repay, your creditors could come demand that you pay, and they could, if you didn't have enough to pay by once they sold your property, they could take you into slavery to pay your debt, and you would be a slave until your debt was paid. And you think, man, that's really harsh. Well, think about this. Someone who has not repaid a debt, all right, is is stealing in God's eyes, right? But sometimes there's circumstances you cannot control. But God wants that person to pay pay back that particular loan, and it was His way of trying to to bring justice to that system. Now, if the if the creditor is unfair, there there are other systems to try to deal with that. As Israel was not to not to charge unfair uh, rates on, on crediting. But, but understand that, that, that someone could, could fall in difficult financial times. They could even sell themselves. If you were on hard financial times and needed a way to provide for your family in times of drought or something like that, you could sell yourself to somebody for a certain amount of period of time. They, you would have provisions to be able to support your family. So it was a way to provide support. It was a desperate means, absolutely. But it was a means of supporting your family. And it was for a limited time. Um, 
Sometimes a thief was sold into slavery. So if a thief was sold into, if a thief, someone took, stole something and they were caught and they didn't have the money not only to repay what they stole, but the restitution that was required, whatever was required by the law, that restitution wasn't paid and that, that man, that thief was then sold into slavery to repay the debt until he could get, until he repaid what he owed. And again, you might think, well, that, that's really harsh. Do you think our system today is any better? In fact, I'd say it's worse. We take people who are nonviolent thieves and put them into prison for decades, right? And you say they're, they're you know, we say, well, they're, they're, they're serving, they're doing their service, so they're paying their debt to society. Are they really paying their debt to society? We're paying, right? Paying lots of money to keep them there. And they're not doing anything except getting worse for the most part because they're with the violent ones. So I'm just saying we look at our system as maybe not as cruel. I'm not so sure about that. right? So I'm just telling you what the Old Testament says about this. So a man, you know, a thief would be sold into slavery. Children were sometimes sold into slavery by their parents. We even see this in Scripture. Right? Um, at times, children were forced into slavery by their parents, by their parents' creditors. Right? We see this in 2 Kings 4.1. So, and, and there were times where children were born into slavery. So, you know, and these are all the Old Testament times, the entrances into slavery in Old Testament times. New Testament had similar pathways into it. Um, Rome enslaved many hundreds of Jews and, and of those nations that they conquered, hundreds of thousands of them, right? So in the Jewish revolt uh, during 80, 66 to 70, right, it, it, the Romans enslaved like 100,000 Jews. 100,000. Uh, during Nero's reign, large number of Armenian captives were sold into slavery as well. But as, as Rome became more of a less of an expansive nation, more of a peaceful nation, the primary source of slavery wasn't there were many wars, so they would capture people and take them slaves. It was from within. People being born as slaves. So a woman who had a child, her child, if she was a slave, that child was born a slave. That child was born into slavery. And the Romans also had a practice of placing unwanted children out to die. They just called it exposing them. So if a father of a home did not want a child for whatever reason, you take that child legally and put that child out. It's called exposing it. And that child would die right? or be picked up by someone to, to raise that child. And often if that child was found and rescued, they'd be raised to be a slave. Now Christians did get involved in that to try to rescue as many children as they could. But I'm just saying that's, that's, that's how it was in Roman times. So I'll, all I have to say is it's, it, uh, slavery was something that was very common. And here's what I want to say about slavery is that it was a good experience for some but really horrible for others. And you could find examples where a, an owner was very kind and benevolent to his, to his slave. But you can also find a lot of cases where the owner was absolutely cruel and terrible to, to his slaves. And that spectrum needs to be kept in mind when we talk about even human slavery in our history. It wasn't all alike. The slaves in Romans, Roman times often were very educated. They could become very ed, very educated. They could own businesses. And then there is a 
process called manumission where they're often granted freedom after an extended period of being a slave. So there's the hope of freedom one day. Although the system worked against them because even as a freedman, you still kind of owed allegiance to the person who was your previous owner. So it, you know, the life of a freedman wasn't necessarily better than the life of a, of a slave if that slave was owned by a, a wealthy, prominent uh, Roman. So it just, there's so much variety. Even, even in U.S. history, right, with slavery, there, are, there, there were Christians who were very benevolent towards their slaves. And there were Christians who were buying slaves to rescue rescue these slaves out of uh, out of the slave market they are they were buying them to rescue them from brutal owners right? so there were christians like that too so again is owning a slave inherently evil particularly if you're doing it to try to rescue someone from brutality of another owner or you want to proclaim the gospel again it's something we have to think about it's not, slavery isn't isn't something that's monolithic. I mean, it's not homogenous like your milk when you open the refrigerator. It's all alike, right? So slavery, there's, there's, there's pockets where it's, it's never God's ideal, but there's pockets where it's good because you have a benevolent master. And then there are pockets where it's just really horrible and there's everything in between, right? We tend to paint things, you know, the, the pro-slavery people tend to look at all the benevolent owners and the pro-abolitionist people tend to look at all the evil owners without realizing there, there, there were both in, their, in, in history. So again, slavery was common. Let's look at the biblical teaching on slavery. And I realize I need to move quickly, and here we're going to wrap things up. Right? Slavery in the Old Testament. Under Mosaic law, slavery was regulated. And we don't have time to look at all the various regulations. So where would you go in that? You can write it down and go look at it yourself. Uh, Exodus 21 Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15. So Exodus 21, Leviticus 25, and Deuteronomy 15. There are various regulations concerning slavery. You could, you could buy a Hebrew slave. God's word regulates that. It says if you buy a Hebrew slave. It doesn't say don't buy a Hebrew slave. It just says if you buy. So here's why I'm pointing this, this out. It's because God's word is never going to regulate something that's inherently evil. Right? Like prostitution, God's word doesn't come in and say, "Well, if you prost- you know, if you go see a prostitute, visit a prostitute, own a prostitute." No, He doesn't get involved in that. He just says prostitution is wrong. Period. Right. Um, so, whereas in slavery, He does regulate it, and people look at it. Modern, our modern eyes look back at this and say, "That's awful. Why? Why would God regulate that?" You know the reason why? If you thought this was bad. You should have seen the nations that Israel lived around. Because the slaves there had no protection at all. This was offering guidelines and, and regulations, mandates to, the, to how masters were to treat their slaves, the period of time they were to be owned. Right? In some cases, I'm a Hebrew slave. It was only for a limited period of time. So we must understand that we, we just can't project our modern opinion back on the Bible We've got to understand what the Bible actually says in its context. So when you get to those difficult texts, study them to make sure you understand what they actually say and and why that they're there. And keep in mind that, that the regulations on slavery never supersede the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. Which are what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That law applied 
to both masters and slaves supersedes all that. So understand that, that even, even though the Bible regulates and the Old Testament regulates slavery, that that, that slavery was not the cruel slavery that we would put in our in our minds today. So God is not authorizing or supporting any kind of like cruel slavery. Let's look at the New Testament. There are seven passages that give instructions to slaves and masters. Right? And I, I want to read these. I know we're pushed on time here, but I want to read these. Go to Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter 6, look at verses 5 to 9. Ephesians 6, verses, beginning at verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, with the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good things each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Okay, so the instruction, most of the instruction is given to slaves. Why? Because there are many slaves of the church of Ephesus. We, we, we sometimes forget that. When we talk about, you know, the church at Ephesus, there are a lot of slaves, a lot of redeemed people who are still slaves in the church of Ephesus. So Paul's providing them instructions how they are to act. They're to be obedient to, to your masters according to their flesh, to do it with sincerity, not by way of eye service. And then he, he exhorts masters. He says, um, you know, do the same things to them. What what are the same things imply? The good things. So the slave was to serve the, his master, do good things to his master as unto the Lord. The master was to do good things to his slave, again, for the Lord's sake. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. In other words, God's not going to grade the, you know, the rich and the wealthy and the masters leniently. Uh, and in in the slaves harshly. He's not going to do that. There's the same guideline. The the same standard is is with God. Um, We could see the same thing from Colossians 3. Again, let's just read it into the record. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 22. Colossians 3, verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. His instructions to slaves obey. It's not escape. Abolitionists have a problem with that. Instructions to masters is grant to your slaves what? Justice and what else? Fairness. What he, what he's doing, he's transforming. God is giving instructions 
for the whole institution to be transformed. He's not overriding the institution of slavery. He's transforming it from the inside out. This is how it must look. You know what? An unbeliever can overthrow it. And in fact, many of the abolitionists in history, not thankfully not all, but, but many were unbelievers. They just saw it as a wrong institution and fought against it. So understand that an unbeliever can like rebel against his master. An unbeliever can run away. But it takes a believer to submit to a master as unto the Lord. It takes a believing master to be kind to somebody in society. He could be unkind to. A master could do that and get away with it. It, it was totally legal in, in our history, in Roman history, for masters to abuse and be very cruel to their slaves. And they often were. And they could get away with it. Is that just? No. God say, masters, you be just. You be fair. First Timothy. Keep going your Bibles. First Timothy 6. Verses 1 to 2. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. Just speaks to slaves. Gives instructions to slaves. It's Paul talking to Timothy to, to preach and teach these things to slaves. And again, he gives us an indication. Look at the end of verse, end of verse 1. So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. A Christian slave was to honor his master in the same way he would honor Christ. Let me just put a little caveat here. Um, the obedience commanded to slaves is not absolute. Any more than the submission that God commands of a wife is absolute to her, to her husband. Any more than the obedience commanded to children, uh, for children to obey their parents is absolute. If a master told his slave to do something that God says is sin, the slave should not obey. Oftentimes, masters would use verses like these. Christian masters would misuse these verses and say, See, slave, you better obey me. That's abusive. It's the same way that when husbands do that to their wives. Wife, you better obey me. You better submit to me. It's not Husbands, it's not your job to enforce that. Scripture Scripture speaks to your wife. The Lord speaks to your wife. Call, calls her to be submissive to you. But it's not your job to make her submit. So understand that there are realms of authority, spheres of authority. And, and the sphere of authority given to whether it's a, a husband or a father or a master right, is limited by God. Right? And we can apply that to our current situation God limits the authority of government, period. So that when it exceeds its area of authority, it becomes an illegitimate authority you do not have to listen to. And, and, this, and so I just want to make that very clear because oftentimes masters would just point out these verses of the Bible without going to full orb. In fact, there's something called the Slave Bible. You can see it. If you ever go to the history of uh, the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., it's, it's on display there now. It's not a permanent display, but it's on there right now. Where there's a, um, It's called the, the Slave's Bible. And it was put together by um, 
Christians, we'll use that term in a very broad sense, they wanted, they wanted slaves to hear the gospel, but they didn't want them to hear all the verses in the Bible that spoke about freedom. So they just selectively put certain verses in the Bible and printed it and gave it to them. It excluded Exodus and other portions of Scripture. So it was very selective. It was very manipulative. It was evil. Right? So um, God doesn't, doesn't ordain or support that. In fact, he would condemn it very loudly. Another passage we go to, just turn your Bibles a little bit, to the book of Titus. Titus 2. Verses 9 to 10. Urge bond slaves, and that's the word doulos, it's slave. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. God, he, you know, through, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, God is telling slaves to, to live and serve uh, unto Christ, serve your master as unto Christ. So the doctrine of our God will be glorified. The word adorn means like put on. You're living out the gospel by how you by how you live. That's what he's talking about. One more passage. Turn keep turning your Bibles to First Peter. First Peter two. Verse two, beginning of verse eighteen. First Peter two eighteen. Servants. I use the word servant. Now this, this, that word servant here is not the word doulos. This is a word that's referred to a household, uh, like a household servant or a household slave. But you can look from the context. He still is talking to slave. This isn't somebody who volunteered or can, can walk away anytime they chose. This is someone who is a slave. He uses the word servants. Keep in mind when Peter's writing, different time period, a lot of persecution that's going on right now. When he's writing. Verse 18. He says servants be submissive to your masters. With all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle. But also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God. A person bears up under sorrows. When suffering unjustly. For what credit is there. If when you sin and are harshly treated. You endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right. And suffer for it patiently. You endure it. This finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He points to Christ. So what's his instructions? Obey. Okay? Even when your master is what? Harsh. Okay? So in this particular situation, he's speaking to slaves who are redeemed. The masters are not redeemed. The masters are pagan masters. Okay? What are these slaves to do? When their master is so harsh, he's given them help so that they'll know what to do to honor Christ. God will reward them when they bear up under unjust punishment, unjust punishment for the glory of Christ. So those are all the scriptures that speak directly to slaves. There's one more. There's there's a couple more that I just want to point out. Go to first Corinthians. And I don't include this in the first list because the scripture actually, uh, the context isn't directly about slavery. It's about marriage, um, about divorce and remarriage. But in that discussion, he uses he uses a um, an illustration from slavery. Look at First Corinthians seven, beginning at verse 
21. I'll just pick up uh, verse 20. Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called, in other words, in which he was, in which he was um, saved. And again, the context is divorce and remarriage. That's the wider context. But here's his illustration. Were you called while a slave? In other words, did you become a Christian while you were a slave? He says, don't worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So he is in a way talking to slaves. He's talking to the whole church and the church of Corinth, which is in Greece, would, would, have, would have been very much had slaves in it. Um, so understand that, that what Paul is saying, if you're a slave, and you can't get free, don't worry about it. You can serve Christ in that slavery where you're at, in God's providence, serve him right there. But if you can become free, rather do that. It's better to be a free man. Right? But, but in the end, we're all, we're all slaves of Christ. That's what he wants to point out. The other passage you might turn to, uh, especially the abolitionist, and rightly so, is Philemon, which we studied recently. Turn to Philemon. And see from verses 15 uh, on to 21, where Paul calls Philemon to accept back, accept back Onesimus, the runaway slave, to accept him back, and, and not just accept him back, but to receive him as he would Paul, to receive him as a beloved brother. Okay? So those are all the, the, the scriptures that you would use um, that speak about slavery. Do you see why, there, why if you look at it directly, uh, the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, don't, they aren't pro-slavery, but they also aren't pro-abolitionists directly. They don't condemn it directly. Again, I would argue that they underrode, uh, under, underrode the, the foundation of evil slavery. One commentator summarized the New Testament's teaching on, on, on slavery this way. He said, the institution of slavery is not in any way in question. The whole interest is in the right conduct of an existing family relationship. So believers are still commanded to love one another. Slaves are called to serve one another. So let's kind of bring things to a close. Let's think about this theologically. God is sovereign over all. God has used slavery as a, as a tool of judgment. Um, we see this throughout the history of Israel and the history of other nations, not just with Israel. God uses slavery as a form of punishment of nations. The book of Judges often emphasizes this. It just happens over and over and over again. The people rebel. God sends a, a nation to conquer them and enslave them repeatedly. Uh, both Israel and Judah were carried off into captivity as final judgment. So we see that with the, you know, the, with the Babylonians and the Syrians um, and the Assyrians. But God doesn't just drag people and into judgment for no reason. He does it for a redemptive reason. And God has often used slavery to bring about good. Yes, he, he can use and override evil to bring about good. An example is Joseph, Joseph's life. We talked about him earlier. It was evil what his brothers did to him. But God meant it for good. Joseph, in 5020, I'm sorry, Genesis 50.20, Joseph says this, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And in order to do what has happened on this day, to keep many people alive. God brought good out of it. 
And that's not the only example in Scripture. There's a slave girl. We don't know her name. But there's a slave girl found in 2 Kings 5 who told Naaman about Elisha. That Elisha, the prophet in Israel, he could heal you of your leprosy. 2 Kings 5, verses 2 to 3, I'll just read it to you. Now the Arameans had gone out in, a marauding, in marauding bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were before the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. You see her attitude? That, that little girl is touched by God. I have no doubt about it. How could she respond? She's been torn away from her family. And yet she is concerned for her master. Doesn't mean she didn't care for her parents or family or anything like that, but but she's she is a good example of of that kind of loving concern toward a master for the glory of God. And and Naaman finds out that there is a true God in Israel because of her. Okay? She hadn't been taken captive, she wouldn't have told her mistress, she wouldn't have the mistress wouldn't have told her husband, who wouldn't have found out about a prophet in Israel, who wouldn't have, then wouldn't have found out that there is a God in heaven. So, conclusion, finally. Understand that the Bible condemns the slave trade. It was evil. And it condemns unjust treatment of slaves. And it condemns um, cruelty towards slaves. It, it condemns man-stealing. Secondly, don't think that slavery is just something from the past. Thankfully, slavery in America is legally dead. I emphasize legally because there are over 50,000 women and children who are brought into this country every year who are under slavery. Untold hundreds of thousands in this country who are under slavery today. Not legally. But our nation isn't exactly pouring a lot of resources and helping them, is it? So, in other places of the world, you've got Arabs and Muslims who still support slavery and still enslave those they conquer. So our world is not done with slavery and will not be until Christ comes. Pray for them. Pray for them. And if I could say something, too, in this regard, we as believers must not engage in anything God condemns. And what I mean, I'm connecting this with our whole discussion here and that. Pornography use and demand is higher than ever. And when a man or a woman participates in pornography, in viewing pornography, you participate in the evilness that created that. And many times that means that a child or a woman has made that pornography against her will or his will. So those that are viewing pornography are participating in this illegal slave trade. Isn't it rather odd that those who would decry publicly, they would say, slavery, that's awful. In the privacy of their home, they're participating in it. They're supporting it. It's big money. Yes, I know some people voluntarily do pornography. But there are many others, hundreds of thousands of others who are, they don't have a choice. 
they are enslaved. And as Christians, we have to pray for them and look for ways to help them. You know, Christians in the days, uh, in the early days when there's still all the slave going on, they, they would actually take up collections and buy slaves to rescue them from the slave market. There are Christians today who are working to try to to save those who are trapped and women and children in, in this sex slave trade. It's, it's awful. Avery. Why didn't God just come out and say, you should not be a master? Slaves, run away. Here's why. The Bible it doesn't condemn it because fundamentally... The institution of slavery points us to a profound relationship we have with God that was rejected in the garden that God wants to redeem. If you call Jesus Lord, you are essentially calling him master, which means you are acknowledging the fact that you are his slave. If someone is a master, that means he has slaves. And we want to soften this. The Christian community wants to soften this and say, well, I'm a servant of Christ. Well, yes, we're called to serve Christ. And the slavery of Christ isn't the only metaphor the Bible uses. So there are lots of other beautiful metaphors to describe our relationship with God. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But there's been a cover-up in Christianity for hundreds of years. And that is that Christians are afraid to call themselves slaves of Christ. MacArthur goes at length at this in his book, Slaves. If you haven't read it, get it. I can loan it to you if you don't want to buy it. Read it. It's worthwhile. It is the most common designator that the Christians use to talk about themselves in the New Testament. Very rarely were they, were they, did they call themselves Christians. They called themselves slaves of Christ, slaves of God, slaves of Jesus Christ. Because he's a good and kind master. Right? He's a good and kind master. And he'll provide everything. Redemption. He'll rescue you from the wrath to come. He'll provide for all your needs. Why do you think the scriptures say, be anxious for nothing, but with everything, but with, with everything, a prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. But before that, it says, the Lord is near. Your master is near. You can't see him because you live by faith. But if you're a Christian, you have a master who knows what you need and he'll provide for you. Why would you want to rebel against him? Why would you want to throw your your fist up in his face and say, I'm living my way? Well, your way is slavery to sin. And you will face his just condemnation and wrath in the end. But your life doesn't have to end that way. If you believe in Jesus Christ and turn to him and repent of your sins and believe in him, you will have a kind and gracious master who loves you. And, And keep in mind, that's not the only metaphor The Bible talks about our relationship with Christ. We're called his children. We're called friends. He loves us. But he still has complete mastery over us. And in that sense, we must embrace the fact that slavery is not inherently evil. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you are a kind master who loves us very much, who provides for us, provides redemption. Even even when we rebelled against you, our father and mother, Adam and Eve, Lord, even though they rebelled against you, you loved us so much that you have given us your son to redeem us, 
to buy us back out of the marketplace of sin and to bring us to yourself. Oh God, help us to be faithful slaves of Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.